0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.
1: There's a lot of times where you don't feel like you have permission to go there, but there's moments where you just can sort of feel that you have an opening. And I remember I, I was just me and my dad alone in the car driving home and I just... I just felt I had an opening and I said, what are you the most afraid of about dying?
2: And, and he answered. And he said, I'm the most afraid of
1: not being able to see the fruit on the trees. And what he was referring to is uh, my older sister was about to get married uh, I was growing up, you know, my book was about to come out, my younger sister was um, just graduating college, and he explained, he's, you know, I gave my whole life to planting these trees, dreaming of the day I could see the fruit. And it just isn't fair.
0: I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at UnmistakableCreative.com. Alex, welcome back to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us.
1: It feels good to be back, man.
0: Thanks yeah, for having me. It is my pleasure to have you back here. Um, we had you back here, I think almost four years ago when you had your book, uh, the third door come out. And I remember you know that being one of those conversations that just really struck a chord with a lot of people, and I remember you even telling me people even cried when they heard the interview. I thought, okay, well, this is a good story. I mean, it really was. <laughs> um, so on that note, that's, that's our goal
1: here: everyone to
0: watch. <laughs> what well, you know, our audio editor Josh is so good. I remember once we did this episode on the mystery of love, where we took the 36 questions to fall in love with anybody, and had two friends ask each other. And Josh asked for creative direction. I said, I don't know, just bring the audience to tears. Wow. So on that note, um, I wanted to start today by asking you what is one of the most important things that you learned from one or both of your parents, one or both of your parents who, that have influenced and shaped who you've become and what you ended up doing with your life.
1: Hmm. Oh, if if it's, if I'm talking about my mom, it's super different than if I'm talking about my dad.
0: Tell them, tell us both then.
1: Okay. Um, my mom is easier for me. Um, I've learned, and it's nothing, she's never said this, and I learned this from her example. And I think that's probably the the strongest lessons you learn from example. My mom has, in the face of extreme pain and extreme difficulty, stood up for herself and stood up for her dignity and has shown me what courage really looks like and that it takes courage and that it's never easy. And mm-hmm. sometimes you have to be willing to lose things in order to gain back yourself. Yeah. And that's a great lesson to read in a book. It's a great thing to see on a tweet, but to have the privilege to have you know, the person who gave you life uh, show it to you. Yeah. And not to teach you a lesson, just because it's what she wants for herself. Mm. You know, it's, what? It, it's hard to. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, sir. Yeah, it's hard not to be grateful when you get to have a front row seat. Like that. Yeah.
0: Why do you think there are so many people who don't actually learn how to stand up for themselves and actually, you know, mm-hmm. let people just run all over them and take advantage of them? Mm-hmm. I can speak from my personal experience.
1: Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's fear. Um, And I think often, not always, but I think often, uh, we can grow up in an environment in childhood where we learn pretty quickly, because kids are smart. Kids pick things up pretty quickly. They learn how to survive in whatever situation they're in. They can realize pretty quickly that, hey, maybe they're not conscious thoughts, but, oh, maybe people pleasing will keep this parent from erupting. Oh, maybe, um, you know, uh, not not singing anymore will keep people from bashing on me. Oh, maybe it's by studying science will get people to applaud me. Um. So we unconsciously pick up on all these implicit messages for our surroundings and without realizing it, whether it's losing our creativity, um, losing our sense of self, um, and sometimes most unfortunately losing our sense of dignity. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then we end up, you know, in our 20s or 30s, walking into our first therapy session, wondering how we got here.
0: (laughs) Uh, Well, speaking of implicit messages from the world around you growing up, you and I are both from immigrant cultures. Uh, and I know that there's probably a lot of similarities and probably a lot of differences, but what were the implicit messages that you got growing up about making your way in the world? Is this is it- why
1: your podcast is so good.
0: <laughs> I'm just asking the questions that I want to know answer. No, I, I, no, I'm
1: just saying like, this is, this is what makes you special, man. Um, Cause these are the things that I think about too. So uh, I say that as the, literally the highest compliment I can. <laughs> um, Oh my God, so many implicit messages. You know, one of the things I realized um, by going to therapy is there's a big difference between the explicit and implicit messages, right? You know, explicit message was, you know, my grandparents telling me, um, you know, they're so proud of me and they love me. Great. Very grateful for that. Implicit message is whenever I talked about any of the creative things I like to do. You know, I sort of, I i have uh, this memory of, you know, being a kid, you know, maybe, you know, seven, eight years old. And I would spend all my summers at my grandparents' house. I live maybe like 15 minutes away from, from our house. And I would spend all summer, like, with a video camera, filming a little. I, I didn't even know SNL was a thing, but I was essentially creating, like, comedy skits with my cousins. <laughs> I would script them. I would come up with the concepts we would do um parodies i didn't know what these things were i thought i was inventing these things um i invented games uh, i learned later it was called baseball what i invented uh, <laughs> <laughs> things. um and it was so fun and i'd spend also then i would go like hiking my grandma lives like in a hilly area i would go like hiking off property and like it, it was just like the most fun times and then i would like you know, it'd be dinner time. My mom would be around the table. My grandparents would be around the table. And then, you know, my grandpa would look in my eyes and be like, Alex, you know, we've just been watching you all day and we're just so proud of you. And, you know, I'm beaming. And he's like, we just see that when you grow up, you're going to be such an amazing doctor. (laughs) And when you're eight, it's funny as adults, to you know, we get the punchline when you're eight, you know? Punchline, and by the way, there is no punchline. Um, so those, you know, when that happens to you, and again, um, it's interesting. What I was about to say just now that I actually stopped myself. I was going to say he said it out of love. Yeah, um, I actually don't think that's true. I think he loves me.
2: That's a separate thing. But my
1: theory is he says it out of fear. Mm. Uh, because where my family came from, and it 's a fair fear yeah. um where my family came from, if you even had a business, forget about being just a creative if you had a business if you um, people can take that away from you. you know the government can come and seize your assets can come and seize your property um They always had this belief that if you 're a doctor, you know if you can help people um no matter where in the world you 're a refugee. You can make a living. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's sort of been the fundamental fear, which led to those fundamental implicit messages throughout my childhood.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I can relate. And they
1: don't explain that to you.
0: Yeah, to your point. (laughs) Well, to your point, I mean, I, I think you make a really good point that is often difficult for people to understand. Even I didn't quite get why my parents believed what they did. It made me want to go back and revise certain sections of my book because I realized that context matters a lot. And in the context that parents like yours and parents like mine grew up in, their life outcomes were fairly binary. It was poverty or security and the mm. downsides of risk were significant. So mm. I wow. looking it, it took me a long time to, to wow. finally understand that, wait a minute, they are giving me this message based on the implicit messages that they got growing up. Well, not even implicit. For them, it was very explicit. <laughs> um, so Speaking of being refugee, I mean, I know you're Iranian descent and, uh, you know, the Middle East is probably one of the most sort of, you know, unstable regions in the world at this point. I mean, so much so that Richard Haas, you know, one of the economic advisors to George Bush wrote a book called The World in Disarray, where there's an entire section on the Middle East and how this basically could be the start of World War III. But there are a couple of different questions that come from this aspect of, of things, uh, when you look at the way that things are now, you know, given everything you've experienced, everything you've been through, what do you think is the path out of the mess that we've created? And I, you know, I don't think this is isolated in the Middle East. I feel like the world itself is perpetually on the brink of disarray. Um, and that's not necessarily, a, you know, me being pessimistic, it's just kind of reality. Uh, and then the other parts of this uh, that I wonder, uh, and we'll come back to, to parental expectations. because I wanted to see if you had siblings as well, but you and I grew up here and yet I know that uh, you're proud of the fact that you have this heritage and culture. How did your parents integrate her- heritage and culture? And how do you think about making sure that you don't lose it as you get older, you have mm-hmm. kids, whatever, and, and pass that on?
1: Yeah. I think about that a lot. Um, Cause it's something important to me. Um, it's interesting. My dad came to America My parents didn't know each other in Iran. Um, You know, they fled separately with their families, the Iranian revolution in 1979. Um, It came to America as refugees. And my dad came when he was about 22. And my mom came when she was about 12. They have about a 10 year age difference. Which means when someone comes as a 12 year old and lands in Los Angeles And, by the way, my mom in Iran went to an American school, so she already spoke English. She came essentially as an American. She became an American pretty quickly. She had a Persian family, but she knew how to, um, you know, code switch. She understood. uh, My mom won't get stopped on the street and asked if she's Middle Eastern. Um, For better or for worse, it's just, uh, also by the way it also i don't like thinking about this but it makes a difference sadly in america their skin color is pretty different my mom is very fair skinned and mm-hmm. uh, my dad is very dark skinned, even though they're from the exact same region um so all of that in a way, and i haven't even thought of that until recently um in childhood you don't really understand these factors uh, but what it created was a house that was a bit divided even though we were "quote unquote" a Persian family, my dad was my dad was really Persian. He was old school. He had the, you know, he was a lot more ingrained in the culture by the time, you know, he had come to America. My mom went to middle school, high school, college, law school, all here in Los Angeles. Um, so as kids it did feel like there was almost like two different worlds to live in. Uh, and it was really easy and I feel bad saying this, but there was a lot of
0: shame around uh,
1: like I would be embarrassed when my dad would pick me up from school, like blasting Persian radio.
0: <laughs> Been there, done that except mine was, I didn't invite my parents to open house cause I was fr- embarrassed by their accents.
1: Oh my God. Oh, open house. Oh, you just like flash so many memories. <laughs> you know, like, I, and it, I feel bad and I can't imagine what it must be like as my dad. Um, and this is actually, I've never thought about this before. Just get the sense or the energy that your kids are embarrassed. Uh, yeah, I would imagine uh, that's hard on the soul. Uh, whereas my mom, you know, it was easy. She looked like the white moms. Uh,
0: Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp,
1: H-E-L-P.
3: Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.
0: It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal. Growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time. And now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips.
1: uh, And something I've been learning is that there's a thing called... um, Internalized racism, which I didn't know, which is when you become, uh, you sort of take on whatever the majority feels, even when it comes to your own religion, your own race.
0: Yeah,
1: oh. um, that—that's the the embarrassment of of who you are and where you came from. Hmm. Do you have siblings? Yeah, I have two amazing sisters: an older sister who's three years older, and a younger sister who's three years younger.
0: Okay. Uh, so what I wonder is what the implicit messages that they got were versus what you got, because I feel like, you know, I've talked about this before and I always like asking people who are immigrants about this. I feel yeah. like when you're in an immigrant family, I bet me and your older sister would probably have a lot in common and are she and I oldest? would probably agree that you and you got away with murder in comparison to her.
1: Oh yeah. Are you the oldest in your family? Yeah. Oh, oh Yeah. And by the way, and sadly this uh, this was a reality the oldest comes with its own stuff in an immigrant family Mm -hmm. and then the oldest girl comes with its own stuff in immigrant family. Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, If I was the oldest,
2: sadly because of just being a male uh, Mm.
1: there would have been a little bit more leniency. Yeah. Um, So my sister has had to fight through Things that, yeah, I was the beneficiary of. (laughs) Yeah, I would. She broke broke mom and dad down (laughs) totally on a lot of barriers, and she has the scars to prove it. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, the world is awesome. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No. And then by the time you get to my little sister, she goes, "How come no one's even yelling at me? Yeah, (laughs) I'm the one being ignored." well uh, the the they're completely you know broken down the yeah parents.
0: well it's funny because we're uh, one of the guys who we're going to have as a guest uh is going to be as a designer of air jordans and i remember you know con- just corresponding with him via email, I said, I'm really excited to talk to you because my parents could never even afford to buy me a pair of Air Jordans. And he replied back and he said, neither could mine until I started working at Nike. I never had my first pair. And uh, the reason I brought that up is because that actually was one of those experiences in adolescence that I think my parents really didn't know how to navigate when suddenly there are popular kids and you start to care about a lot of things that nobody gives a shit about in adult life, like what brand of shoes you're wearing. I was just thinking about how stupid it would be can you imagine as an adult going to like a bus stop or even a coffee shop and making fun of somebody because they're wearing crappy or cheap shoes? That yeah. would just be absurd. But that's what kids do.
1: Well, actually, you'll be surprised what happens in um, country clubs. <laughs> <laughs> but I, like, it's just done, it's just uh, there's like a Kanye line in a Kanye song saying like, I think it's like rich people do the nastiest things or the meanest. Someone listening will know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Uh, no, it, it stays pretty high school in some, in some demographics. I'll tell you that.
0: Wait, well, yeah, I mean, that was the thing
1: I think. Yes. Was, I think people like us do not go around uh making comments about people's clothing. Well,
0: you know, the reason that, 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 you know, I brought that up is because I think for people like us particularly grew up in immigrant families, like you, when you're the second kid, you don't have to deal with any of that. Cause your parents are like, Oh, we've been through this nightmare before we know exactly what this is about. Um, Whereas when you're the first, it's like, what happened to our son? Why is he such an asshole now?
1: Yeah. Uh, The tensions between um, immigrant families when it comes from the people who came from the original country and the kids who were born here. um, I've been surprised by how similar the melodies are across cultures. Yeah. I'll talk to kids of Chinese immigrants who read The Third Door and say, my dad has said the exact same things. <laughs> um, uh, Indian families, almost verbatim. Yeah. Um, you know, even uh, Mexican family, because what happens, I, have you watched the movie Encanto, the Disney movie? I haven't, actually. Uh, it's, you're watching, you cry. It's literally the immigrant story. Okay. Um, I'll have to add that to my list. told. And essentially, I'm not going to give away the movie, but essentially the themes are what happens when grandma still is holding on so tight to the kids because of trauma she hasn't processed. Mm. And what are the effects on the mental health? By the way, none of these words are used in the movie, but if you like, when you're done, you'll realize that's what it's about. What's the effects when you're holding on so tight Because of the trauma you went through that you end up suffocating uh, the people who, who you're trying to give a better life for.
0: Yeah. Well, speaking of mental health, what are the implicit messages about mental health when you grow up in an Iranian community? Because I can tell you for damn sure that <laughs> no. in an Indian community, therapy is for crazy people until your son ends up in therapy. Because I remember friends of mine all thought it was all shit until their friends started getting divorced and they started seeing the reality of, wait a minute, this is, this is something we've been stigmatizing for way too long. And the consequences have been quite severe. Therapy for
1: crazy people is a lenient way to say it. To me, <laughs> in my family therapy and cocaine were in the same category. Um, What I'll say is, again, this is all Kate only, this conversation is only possible in hindsight. And only possible thanks to, you know, I'm so grateful being able, and having the privilege to go to therapy once a week for 10 years. Um, And seeing the positive effects on on my mental health and on my outlook in life. And understanding where I came from. Uh, The amount of shame.
2: Shame and fear. That
1: a lot of uh, cultures, particularly a a Persian culture. uh, But, you know, there's cultures out here in America that. Function their family nuclear family functions just the same as my grandpa's did in in 1920 Iran Um, when the when the core of the family is based on shame and fear the enemy is having an outside body weigh in on what's going on Um, because the the safety comes from keeping you know keeping the status quo and I think a lot of people in our generation right now. And I'm sure a a vast, vast, vast swath, maybe even the majority of people listening can resonate with the sort of tectonic shifts that happen in a family dynamic when just that first person starts going to therapy or starts going to support group or starts going into a 12-step group. Uh, Things change. And I'll tell you, many times it's the people who um, have resisted the change that get the most upset about the changes. Uh, but again, it goes back to what I said about my mom in the beginning, which is like, to see someone like choose themselves uh, and invest in their own dignity, invest in their own sanity, invest in their own serenity. My God, are you giving a gift to the next generation? And I think, you know, therapy isn't about, you know, bashing what happened. It's about understanding it so you don't have to perpetuate the generational pains um, that have been passed down.
0: We actually had a guy here named Mark Wollen who wrote this book called It Didn't Start With You, which was all about generational trauma. And I kind of was shocked when I went through it because this was right before the pandemic started. And I remember I got really sick. I couldn't ski or snowboard and I was coughing every day. I had to basically cancel all my interviews because I couldn't even go five minutes without coughing. So I decided to sit down and go through this book and do all the exercises, which I don't always do that for a book. And I think I'd had this like just deep fear of being alone. And as I went through that book and started to look, it was like, wow, there are a lot of men in my family who've been left at the altar or had weddings that didn't work. Mm-hmm. I'm like, this is not my trauma. Like this is generationally inherited. And I didn't even realize it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's real, man. Um, and again, the goal isn't uh, you know, sit around and dwell in it forever. The goal is to understand it and unpack it. Um so we can live freer, more joyful, um, more enjoyable lives where we can be more creative and be more of service and um
0: sleep better. Yeah. So one final question mm-hmm. about about um, you know, parents and growing up, you know, you mentioned there's a lot of tension because you have sort of this challenge of integrating two cultures what did your parents teach you implicitly or explicitly about intimate relationships? Oh,
2: (laughs) Oh, man. Ah,
1: wow. Explicitly hold on the fort, no matter what it takes, which I'm starting to realize might not have been the healthiest. (laughs) Yeah. No. <laughs> message I'm grateful for it, but might not. Wow, wow, um, implicitly perhaps
2: chaos uh, is par for the course of an intimate relationship,
1: which I'm really trying uh to unravel and make sure I don't uh carry out yeah um taking care of the other it's a, it's a balance i haven't figured out yet which is how to be supportive to your partner without uh taking care or taking responsibility for their experience or emotions um something i struggle with a lot and mm. uh, i'm still trying to figure out that balance
0: yeah. I think that you and I probably had very similar messages. Mine was, you know, there's no such thing as boundaries. Um, as far as the hold down the fort, no matter what, I am pretty sure that that is probably common to Indians as well. Like, you know, I think it's terrible that we stigmatize Indian women for getting divorced. It's like a scarlet letter. And I think my parents' generation, people stayed together because they just thought they should, even though they're miserable together.
1: Yeah, and it's, you know, I can, I I see the stories where um, people are in domestic abusive relationships, they're in uh, physically abusive relationships, they're in uh, emotionally abusive relationships, financially abusive relationships, um, and the family structure insists that the only thing worse than domestic abuse is divorce. And that's heartbreaking. I don't stand for it. It's actually created a lot of friction. Um, between me and other people who I know, because um, you know that's a that's a hill I'm w- willing to die on, because uh, I don't agree.
3: Yeah. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices
0: Well, I mean, part of the reason you reached out is because you wanted to start, uh, have a conversation about the next chapter. And I know that, uh, last time you were here, you'd had a book come out. You had this like wild success simultaneously with this horrible tragedy. And, um, this is what you said to me. Take a listen. I was telling my
1: best friends last night that, you know, most people think that I'm dealing with. The loss you know of my dad and the grief that comes with it during my book launch, but actually the opposite is true for me. It feels like I'm dealing with my book launch during the loss of my dad yeah it's been it's been a year now, and I still like I cry every day, and the hardest part of this of this journey has been navigating this loss
0: so I wonder about so many things after hearing that clip. I've reflected on that clip so many times. And I remember watching your Facebook newsfeed as your book became this wild success, um, selling thousands and thousands of copies. Because I remember, I think I had a book come out right around the same time uh, or shortly after, and it didn't do as well. And I probably have written this down somewhere, and I don't know that I ever posted it, that I remember thinking to myself, Mike, all right, I wouldn't trade a single sale of my book if it meant losing a minute with my dad. And I'm guessing that that's probably the same for you.
2: Man, I'm teary, man. Uh, I think I'm teary because I can forget uh, what I've been through. And... This has actually been very helpful for me. Uh, You playing that clip has brought
1: me some more compassion for myself. Uh, I can wonder why I'm still so tightly wound or why in relationships things can feel so uh, painful to open up about. Uh, You know,
2: after, you know, there's more to the story. You know, after you and I had that conversation, what I didn't know is that My dad passed away. The day the book came out,
1: or two days after the book came out, my grandfather passed away. 30 days after my grandpa passed away. So I literally go from the book launch to my grandpa's funeral. 30 days
2: after that, my grandmother passed away.
1: And that same year, my childhood friend who... We've known each other since we were in kindergarten. She passed away at the age of 25.
2: And. And yeah, then. Yeah, I'm sort of at a loss for words right now, but.
1: uh, Yeah, it, it does. It does help me relax a bit and realize, you know, at the times it does feel like I can be losing my mind a bit or, uh, why am I, why am I, why do things feel so intense? Um, I can forget that there was a lot that's gone on in the past few
0: years. Yeah. How old were you when that happened? Cause I don't think I remember how old you were when we spoke last time. And I was... 25 okay 29 right now I kind of gathered that so 25 most of us don't ever imagine losing parents at the age of 25 that's pretty early in life I mean some people lose them in childhood but 25 is not something that any of us do And, and I remember just talking to somebody yesterday like saying that I used to think my greatest fear was being alone and that stopped being my greatest fear for a long long time ago. But my greatest fear was that one or both of my parents wouldn't be alive for big moments in my life. Uh, and I wonder at the age of 25 to have experienced so much tragedy and so many losses of some of the people that you love the most, what kind of decisions did you make about how you would live your life going forward?
2: Mm. Hmm. That makes me smile Uh,
1: because I don't, I'm not a big, I I'm not like a silver lining type person, but I am a learning person Uh,
2: and tragedy teaches you whether you want
1: to take the lesson or not is up to you, but there's, there's some, there's some lessons there. Uh, I have become very, very, very intentional
2: about knowing which priority comes first.
1: Uh, Almost to the point that it's painful uh, being around people of my generation and my sort of bubble I live in. Um, When I see, you know, people obsessed with crypto, but they can't talk to their spouse normally, you know, it makes me want to, like, pull my hair out. Um, When I see someone really... uh, achieving tons of financial success but talks about how one day they hope to t- be able to take their kids to soccer practice. I say, "What are you talking about? You can you can go. You can go right now. I'm pretty sure you're rich enough to, you know, do it." Um and they're just trapped um they're trapped psychologically. And I've never really put it in these words, but I think the death of my dad freed me in ways I didn't know. It sort of showed me, I remember very vividly uh, the week my dad passed away, feeling like I saw the end of the video game. Because uh, the way my dad passed, you know, my heart breaks when I, and I have friends where a parent gets hit by a car, a parent falls off a ladder and is just gone out of nowhere. That I cannot imagine what that's like. With my dad, it was this 14 month March to death from his diagnosis of pancreatic cancer until um, he took his final breath in our living room while me and my sisters and my mom
2: were standing by his bedside.
1: I did get the, uh, and it might be weird to use the word, but the opportunity to see what it's like to die. Uh, and I got to learn. Uh, sort of what happens at the end if you're lucky enough to be able to and I really do mean the word lucky enough to have a year to reconcile and negotiate and do all the things that happen when you're when you're facing your mortality. And it just made me realize like
2: the relationship with the people close to me is way
1: more important than anything. Um at the same time, my sense of dignity is way more important to me than anything.
2: Um,
1: I don't want to be on my deathbed wondering, "What if? What if I actually stood up for what I really believed? What if I? If? if, if what if I would have spoken up and would have saved that person's life just by using my words? Um, what if I would have?" Risked, you know, a safe payday for something that I truly believed would have, you know, helped the world in a new way.
2: When you realize you're going to die at some point, uh, and not on your own timeline, I get my dad at sixty felt he was extremely shortchanged. You know, he expected to die at ninety, like his dad eventually
1: passed away at Uh, but you know having my friend um, and her name is actually mallory smith and um, for those of you who like to read nonfiction, fiction her her journals got published uh, as a memoir by penguin random house the book is called salt in my soul and the documentary just came out uh, a few weeks ago and there were great write-ups in the new york times and um, I watch it in the theater with uh, some of my close friends and with Mallory's parents. And Mallory passed away at 25. My dad passed away at 60. I have a grandpa right now who's 95 and still alive. And he also feels he's being short-changed. <laughs> um, and, I, and I say that like literally with a laugh because you go, oh, oh, you're always going to wish for more time. Oh. You're always going to wish for things to be different. And that realization is actually liberating and saying, oh, so I might as well do whatever the fuck I want. Because I'm always going to wish there was more time or I would have could have done, it. you know. Um, So there is some liberation. And and I ask myself quite frequently, my intimacy with uh, death allows me to think about it in a way that I know for a lot of people my age uh, they can get really nervous about and I can I, I literally think oh if I were to die this year would I be how would I feel on my deathbed and I can have that mental conversation with myself very comfortably
0: um, so that's that's where I'm at well speaking of conversations on a deathbed uh, you know and reconciliation and all of those things. Tell me about the conversations you had with your dad during those fourteen months. What were the ones that stood Oof. out?
1: Uh, there's one that just popped up in my head the most. Um, there was one day, um, and there was a, there was a handful of ones that I'll remember for, for the rest of my life. But there was one that really stood out because um, it was the one where he spoke back, where I I felt I could understand him a bit more. And this is maybe the last few months. This is maybe like four months before he passed. Um, He was still on the chemo regimen, still fighting. And I was, you know, picking him up from the chemo center at the hospital and driving back home. And there are times... um, there's a lot of times where you don't feel like you have permission to go there, but there's moments where you just can sort of feel that you have an opening. And I remember I I was just me and my dad alone in the car driving home. And I just, I just felt I had an opening and I said, what are you the most afraid of about dying?
2: And, And he answered
1: and he said, I'm the most afraid of, not being able to see the fruit on the trees. And what he was referring to is uh, my older sister was about to get married. Uh, I was growing up, you know, my book was about to come out. My younger sister was um, just graduating college. And he explained, "He's, you know, I gave my whole life to planting these trees, dreaming of the day I could see the fruit. And it just isn't fair. And I remember grasping for something, uh, you know, trying to think of something to give him some comfort. And I remember, you know, reaching for a biblical reference. Um, you know, my family's Jewish and a story from the, you know, Torah, the old Testament, uh, of Moses. And I said, you know, dad, um, even though Moses, you know, led, you know, the Israelites out of Egypt, uh, God didn't let Moses into Israel. Moses had to die before, before the fruit was barren on the tree. And I looked at my dad and he did not give a shit about that. <laughs> <laughs> zero comfort. So I like, again, I was trying to grasp for something. Yeah. And. An analogy came to me. I said, dad, maybe life isn't a marathon. Maybe it's a relay race. And your dad ran his leg of the race and passed you the baton. And you ran your leg of the race and you're passing you know, me and my sisters, Brianna and Talia, the baton. And you no, know, you ran your race as best as you could.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. That brought some, some relief. Weird question, uh, because you said you didn't give a shit. What were the moments that made you guys laugh together during Mm. those 14 months?
1: Mm. We watched a a couple like funny movies. I think it was like my dad loved uh, my dad's like taste in humor is very like down the like he likes Kevin Hart. He likes like The Rock, uh, Two and a Half Men. Like that's sort of he liked that stuff. Um, I, I'll, I, I personally lean more towards like a, you know, Larry David Curve Your Enthusiasm or Jerry Seinfeld or, um, oh, we just like watched some movies together, which was fun. And there wasn't that much laughter, sadly, in those 14 months. I wish there was, yeah. um, there was a lot of fear. Um, uh, there's a lot of anger and resentment of why is this happening? Um, there was lots of tender moments. Um, but the laughter key on the keyboard wasn't played that often, but I'm grateful. Um, and you know what? My dad's favorite comedian was actually a Persian comedian by the name of Maz Brani. And we were able to bond over that. Um, we were able to go watch. I remember... It, there's like a movie of Kevin Hart, I think, like being a, poli- uh, a silly police officer with The Rock. Mm-hmm. I've seen that one. I, I feel like there's like 50 of those movies. Yeah, right? yeah <laughs> exactly. It was, one of them.
3: Yeah. it was
1: another funny, silly Kevin Hart being silly. He's small, The Rock's big, ha ha, ha. Like, <laughs> uh But my dad loved that shit. Um, yeah. And I remember just going to a movie one night with him. And uh, and I'm grateful to have, to have been able to do that.
0: Yeah. Well, speaking of starting next chapters, what were you most afraid of during that time? Mm. Mm. Uh,
1: unconsciously, not a conscious thought, but I think if I had to go back deep and pull back the layers, if I had to give words to the fear, it's I won't be okay. I won't
2: be I I won't be okay.
1: Uh, you know, the fear of losing a parent or of someone you love that's close to you that has been a, a an attachment in your life. Whether it's been a comfortable attachment, a chaotic attachment, it's been an attachment in your life. Um and especially the first time, this is the first time I was really losing someone that close to me the fear just has its hands around your neck. Um,
2: And it feels like everything's falling apart.
1: Um, And I wished, and maybe I don't wish, um, but I would, you know, there's some movies where the person has cancer and all the families like sitting around a circle, playing the guitar, going through old photos together. And it's like this kumbaya. And this was not, (laughs) Um, it was kicking and screaming to the end.
2: And yeah hmm. yeah, there it,
1: it's easy to to reflect and have some insight on my fears in hindsight at the time you're just trying to keep your head above the water, yeah, and those of you who are going through it because I know there's a lot of people going through it right now. Um, it's okay. One day at a time, keep your head above the water one day at a time. Um, you know, the water will recede. You will be able to stand on your feet again. Um, you will be able to pick up the pieces. Things do come back together. Uh, just not on your own timeline.
0: Yeah. Well, speaking of things coming back together, uh, what have the last couple of years been like after all this tragedy, like, how did you put the pieces back together of your life? Mm. Or is that something that's still kind of a work in progress?
1: Yeah, of course it's still a work in progress. Um, You know, lots of, lots of therapy, lots of support groups, um, lots of prayer and meditation. Um, Something that has changed, which I'm really grateful for, is my whole family, like the nuclear family, mom, sisters, brother-in-law, have become very intentional the past year that like, Yes, there's, uh, there's a time and a place for the healing and the reconciliation of the soul. Um, uh, but the resurrection of the soul to bring back the part of you that feels that died. You need to work on that too. And that's fun. Like that, that not, it is fun, but that the thing that you're trying to resurrect is that sense of joy and feeling alive again and that takes just as it's in a weird way it was easier for us to go to therapy sessions every week than it was to plan family picnics uh playing tennis together picking up new hobbies um but now we're a fucking fun machine you know my sisters are taking poetry classes and uh knitting classes and this, that, and, like, you know, we're doing frisbee golf, and we're doing tennis together this weekend, and we're doing Sunday brunch by the ocean, and, like, that takes work, too, to switch into that gear. um, And I actually think it's a part of the grieving process that isn't talked about, which is uh
2: learning how to live again. Yeah. And not
1: just, like, survive, but really live. You know, there's a great quote by Maya Angelou that says, life loves those who dare to live it. And learning how to dare to live life has been a lot of the past year for me.
0: Hmm. So I want to finish with talking about uh, your, your experiences writing the book, particularly with the people that you met during that time, because You were able to somehow get your foot in the door to talk to, you know, cultural icons. We're talking Steven Spielberg, Bill Gates, like people that everybody listening to this has heard of. I'm not as interested in what you learned from them because we talked about that last time, but I'm really curious what you've changed your mind about when it comes to success after losing a parent Mm. after- at at such a young age and getting to see sort of cultural icons up close.
1: Ooh, that's a good one. Ooh, wow. Now you're asking me to take, you know, years of thinking and put it into some words right now. So
0: I've been known to do that to people from time to time. (laughs)
2: Okay, I've learned two big things. Number one is... I was obsessed with external success
1: for reasons I didn't understand at the time. And that's okay. There's no regret or remorse or guilt around it. It's just a realization. Um, You know, when you have, you know, essentially the premise of the third door is me as an 18-year-old from my dorm room... Dreaming up the, you know, like you said, the people I dreamed of learning from. You know, Bill Gates for business, Lady Gaga for music, Jane Goodall for science, My Angelou for Poetry, making that list and sort of tracking them down and learning from them, and putting it all together. There's a special kind of uh something that, you know, makes someone want to do that. Um and I've learned a lot about myself that there is a part of me that really um since t- talking about implicit messages from childhood, um, specialness was a really big thing ingrained in me. Like the need to be special. Uh, sure enough, essentially, you know, the book talks about success, but really at that time in my life as an 18-year-old, these are the people I deemed the most special. Um, and I wanted to learn how they did it. And I'm trying to with a lot of my inner work right now, reconcile and renegotiate with myself uh, the meaning of that word special. Um, so that's a big thing. Um, another big realization that I've had the past few years is that most people, myself included, think they care about success, think they care about their goals. But in reality, you know what happens when you achieve a big goal? A couple of weeks later, what do you think? What's the next? What's the next one? Yep. What's next? If you succeed, you think, "How do I do it better?" If you fail, you think, "How do I do it better?" (laughs) And actually, there's something amazing about you know, since the third door came out three years ago, I've been lucky enough to be able to travel the world and see all different cultures how they approach success. Um, Because when you're doing a book, you know, a book event for a book like the third door, the people who come are not your average people. They're people who sort of have this similar personal growth, personal development um, itch. And what I've realized is that it's not success people are looking for. It's continued growth. Because if it really was a singular place that people were looking for, people would stop after they achieved whatever their first big goal was. But it's this sense of continued growth, whether we know it or not, that we yearn for the most. And a lot of my research the past few years has been shifting from, cause the first, I would say the third door is a big uh, thesis on how do you sort of break through the impenetrable walls to achieve your big goal? Whatever that is. My research the past few years has been much more focused on how do you cultivate the soil so growth just happens naturally? What tools and what mindsets and what frameworks cultivate continued growth, no matter where in your career you are or what stage in life you 're in so that 's been a big epiphany there too, and I'll say the third big epiphany, and the last one i 'll share is that I used to think I had a problem where I would be you know, the third door starts off with me lying on my dormer bed, staring up at the ceiling, going through this. What do I want to do with my life crisis? And surprise, I actually went through it again the past couple of years again. I thought it was sort of like you do it once in life. You figure out your path and you move forward. Um, but I once, do you remember Geek Squad? Yeah. Yeah, I remember I once for the third door was talking to the founder of Geek Squad. And he said something I'll remember for my whole life. He said... If you're not going through the what I want to do with my life crisis every 10 years, you're not living. And that like always stayed with me. And essentially what he's getting at is this phenomenon that I've been observing, which is we all, whether we know it or not, have these periods in our life. And I think a lot of people are going through it right now, particularly where your stomach is turning You feel a tug of war inside of yourself. Your sort of inner check engine light is on. And naturally, if you're anything like me, my first instinct when I feel that tossing and turning in my stomach, I think, what the hell is wrong with me? Why aren't I grateful for what I have? Why aren't I content? Will nothing satisfy me? Why can't I just be content like everyone else? but it's actually taken me a lot of research and particularly a lot of research into the very renowned psychiatrist Viktor Frankl to realize that that inner tension that you're feeling is actually in the words of you know Dr. Viktor Frankl essential to your mental health why because that inner tension is the seed for change pushing you towards a life of deeper meaning That inner tension is the seed for change pushing you toward a life of deeper meaning. So as soon as we start seeing these inner tensions as a positive momentum, that while they're uncomfortable, I'm not saying they're comfortable. So although they're uncomfortable, it's actually a healthy discomfort. It's a healthy distress. It's what's needed to us to realize our greater potential.
0: Wow. Uh, Well, I have one last question for you, which uh, I know you've heard me ask before since you were here before. What do you think it is to make somebody or something unmistakable? Hmm.
1: I'll tell you the first thing that just came to right now, which are words that Quincy Jones shared. Um, I'm not rehashing it for the sake of rehashing it, but it just, I've all, I'm almost uh, adopted it as my own mantra. Uh, and something Quincy shared was that number one thing he teaches all the creatives he mentors is know yourself and love yourself. And that's it. Know yourself and love yourself and everything takes care of itself. And I've been trying to practice that in my life and. And I think he's right.
0: Wow. Um, I got to say, Alex, this is probably the best conversation I've had this year so far.
1: Mm, That means a lot, man. Thank you. Yeah, Um, Feelings
0: mutual. I can't thank you enough for coming back and sharing all the things that you've learned over the past couple of years and your insights and your wisdom with our listeners. Where can people learn more about you, your work, your books, and everything else that you're up to?
1: I appreciate that, man. Um, Yeah. You know, I live digitally uh, just at the handle, now at Alex Benayan, um, my full name on Instagram and Twitter. Um, And if this conversation resonated with anyone, if you sort of vibe with this kind of thinking, um, you know, the third door is available wherever you like to get your books, whether that's Amazon or Barnes and Noble, or if you like audio, it's on Audible. And I, you know, read the audio book, which was a lot of fun. Uh, And if you end up getting the book because of this conversation, definitely let me know on Instagram or Twitter so I can say thank you.
0: Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Unmistakable Creative Podcast. While you were listening, were there any moments you found fascinating, inspiring, instructive, maybe even heartwarming? Can you think of anyone, a friend or a family member who would appreciate this moment? If so, take a second and share today's episode with that one person, because good ideas and messages are meant to be shared. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag? Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands.